On the frontier, your decisions had life or death consequences. Make the wrong choice and you'd end up scalped and burned alive or ripped apart by a grizzly bear. Make the right choice and you can earn 10 years worth of a regular person's salary in a single hunt. Today we're going to explore three tough decisions encountered by the greatest frontiersman in history, Daniel Boone. Death was the default on the frontier. Without taking the right actions, you would not survive. You would freeze, you would starve, you would be murdered by lawless gangs or uh, pissed off, irate Native Americans. But Boone not only survived, he thrived. He was <clears throat> a, an expert marksman, an extremely skilled frontiersman, deeply knowledgeable about Native American traditions and customs. He was a valorous soldier, um, uh, a survivor. He saved tons of people. He, ended, he died a rich man. Um, and he was an extremely skilled hunter as well. And he discovered the uh, Kentucky Territory at a time when it was completely inaccessible to the pioneers. So why did he thrive? Well, what made him successful? A lot of it was to do with his open-mindedness, his ability to detach and keep a cool head, and analyze scenarios under pressure. And what kept him alive can help us thrive. So let me let me set the scene a little bit and tell you what captures me so much about Daniel Boone. So a guy like Daniel Boone on the long hunt in the 1760s and 1770s, you know, riding a horse into the deep interior of the country in small groups or alone, would have to literally be a doctor, a blacksmith, a boat builder, a gunsmith, a cooper, a hunter, a marksman. They'd have to know the ways, traditions, and customs of Native American tribes in order to both deal with them uh, effectively, trade with them, negotiate with them, and also to fight them where necessary. And the Native Americans were deeply familiar with the terrain, were extremely effective at woodland fighting in a way that the pioneers weren't when they first got to the New World. So if you weren't able to learn from them, you would be completely destroyed by them. And um, it, was, it was a really fascinating time in history where if you were a regular person, like let's say you're, you were a butcher, it would take you 10 years to make the amount of money that a market hunter like Daniel Boone could make in a single hunt. So it was a very lucrative time for uh, an intrepid frontiersman willing to risk life and limb to get hides and discover new parcels of land and be a pathfinder. And um, for for all those reasons, Daniel Boone put himself in situations where good decision-making was the difference between utter destruction and decades of wealth within the, within the span of days or weeks. So specifically, we're going we're gonna to discuss 
three tough decisions that he encountered, as I said. So one was what's called Braddock's Folly. So as a militiaman, Daniel Boone, along with George Washington and a handful of other colonials, went along with a British general, Braddock, as he marched his troops into a massacre with high knees to the beat of the drum. It was one of the greatest disasters in British military history um, in the New World. We're also going to talk about Daniel Boone's daughter being kidnapped by Shawnee Indians and how he dealt with that situation where he had to react quickly before she was tortured and killed in a period of extremely savage and relentless violence and cycles of escalating violence on both sides. Um, it was almost guaranteed that she would be killed. The question is, would it be quickly? Would it be slowly? Best case, she might be enslaved. Um, and so it was obviously a very high stakes decision. So we're going to talk about how he got through that and what would have happened if he listened to less cool heads and been impulsive in that moment. We're also going to talk about a legendary Indian chief called Blackfish and his attack on Boonesboro with 300 warriors and 50 British soldiers against a handful of starving frontiersmen and what it took for the frontiersmen to come out on top. And what it took was some creative and thoughtful decision-making and leadership by Daniel Boone. And we're also going to talk about Daniel Boone's son, Israel. So I guess we're going to talk about four things, actually. Uh, going into battle with him with terrible odds, goaded on by a hot-headed psychopath at what's called the Battle of the Blue Licks. So let's jump into, let me see if I want to give you guys a little more context. General Braddock came to the U.S. to fight the French and Indian War, and his first target was Fort Duquesne, which was this major French fort, and he had this belief that the Native Americans were just cowards and couldn't fight, which was completely puzzling to any frontiersman who had been dealing with the butchery and violence um, from Native American warriors for decades and decades. Um, and dealing with their courage and martial skill. So his his attitude was like completely baffling to, to those folks and he also considered the American officers to be uh, second-class soldiers as well. So for that reason, when the American soldiers would try to tell Braddock, like, the Native Americans are a lot tougher and a lot smarter than you think, and you should be wary and treat them with respect, he would scoff that no savage should inherit the land. So, you know, this was a real imperious guy, and he had... A lot of uh, opinions that the Redcoats were just going to go in there and just take the land. It was going to be no problem. And 
he doesn't need to hear the advice of any colonial officers um, or frontiersmen. He's, he's, he's good to go. So Braddock, along with a bunch of colonials, a bunch of redcoats, um, George Washington and Daniel Boone makes this journey to Fort Duquesne. And as he approaches, a small delegation of Indians appear requesting an audience. Braddock refuses to treat with the savages and instead sends Washington and an American scout. The Native Americans tell the, the colonials that if the general would hold off his attack for a few days, they would be able to convince the French to negotiate a withdrawal. And Washington and Fraser eagerly bring the offer to Braddock and the general scoffs. Braddock was a protege of a guy called William Augustus, Duke of Cumberland, who was known as the Butcher of Culloden, who nine years earlier led an army that mercilessly destroyed the Jacobite host of the young pretender to the throne, um, Prince Charles Edward Stuart. So Braddock was basically like, hey, we have an overwhelming firepower advantage. We're going to be just fine. There are 250 fusiliers and Canadian militiamen, and the troops are fortified by 700 Native Americans who Braddock thought were, you know, a, a non-entity. And nobody knew, of course, as well, that the Ottawa contingent was led by a feared chieftain named Pontiac. So Braddock, on the morning of July 9th, 1755, gets everyone into rigid military formations and ignoring the American militia officers, including Washington, who were who pleading with him to have scouts on his flank and approach with speed and caution and, and stealth and cover and move. Braddock is like, nope, we're going to array our soldiers with colors flying, drums beating, fifes playing the Grenadiers March. So they begin approaching the fort through a twisting forest path that descends into thick and dank timberland, leading right up to this, this wooden stockade fort, you know, the pioneer fort that you, you probably picture in your head right now. So Boone and his other uh, American militiamen, who were called irregulars because they're not British regulars, redcoats, um, were certain that they're walking into a trap, but nobody wanted to listen to them because they're, you know, these provincial colonials. What do they know about, uh, you know, conflict and combat compared to the esteemed British redcoats? So... Basically, the Native Americans and the French had slipped away under the cover of darkness and were hiding among bushes, fallen logs, tall grass, and massive oak trees off to the flank of the British on both sides. The resultant ambush turned the trail into an escape-proof enclosure, the holding pen of a butcher house. Butcher house, slaughterhouse, slaughterhouse, butcher shop, slaughterhouse. Point being is Braddock's forward companies were cut down within moments, and as the main body of his army huddled in utter bewilderment, they too were picked apart by musket balls and arrows. So 
Braddock was one of the last to fall when a musket ball passed through his right arm and lodged in his lung. He fell from his horse like a man in slow parish and was carried from the field by, among others, the young Washingtons. So in the meanwhile, war cries are echoing through the trees and Native Americans are darting from the woods to lift the scalps of fallen enemies. The ripping silk sounds of musket balls are cleaving the air as Boone, Morgan, and the rest of the uh, American Irregulars are trying to escape. <clears throat> Washington, as he tries to get away with the Americans and the few Americans and redcoats who are left, um, is shot, has horses shot out from under him like four times. And just to give you the numbers here, 714 British privates and non-commissioned officers were killed uh, during this battle. So basically, the lesson here is to try to remain open-minded. Like we talked about last time in the Thinking in Bets episode about the importance of dissent and the importance of not shooting the message based on your feelings about the messenger. So if Braddock had taken more seriously the uh, message that the colonial officers were trying to relay to him about the danger he faced importing European methods of warfare to the New World, um, and if Braddock had not underestimated the Native American warriors the way that he did, he all these people may not have died. If Braddock had parlayed with the Indians instead of deriding them, a lot of bloodshed might have been spared and they might have been able to come to some kind of agreement. But all of that was not possible because he lacked the open-mindedness to make a good decision about what to do here. Now on the flip side, Daniel Boone and George Washington, having, especially Daniel Boone, having lived on the frontier among Native Americans, having learned their ways intimately, having interacted with them since they were young kids, understood that these weren't, you know, cowardly, lesser people. These were dangerous and brave warriors. And like, they need to be dealt with very carefully and with due respect. Um, so their open-mindedness allowed them to see more clearly the possible scenarios that could transpire. So a more personal set of decisions that Daniel Boone had to make occurred when his daughter, Jemima, was kidnapped by Native Americans. And at this time, again, like women and children were not spared uh, by either side. There's rampant violence. There was, you know, rampant torturing, killing of people regardless of their um, combatant status. And so when Jemima was captured, this was, you know, almost a, a, a guaranteed death sentence. So basically, you know, Jemima is out canoeing with some other uh, young girls and she gets seen by these uh, five Indians, three Shawnee and two Cherokees. So they wade in and they, you know, capture these kids. 
So the kids are screaming, trying to get people's attention, but they're pretty far out and there just aren't that many people out here. Um, so they can't get anyone's attention. And also the Cherokees threatened to scalp them if they continue. So what they do is they kind of feign weakness, the kids do. And they're like, oh, you know, we can't like walk that fast. We're injured. Um, they they try to like leave little bits of uh, cloth from their dresses as a trail to be followed. But eventually the Native Americans kind of realize this and they begin circling back through the cane breaks and circling and then walking through the middle of streams to like hide their tracks. So Daniel Boone realizes that his daughter, along with um, <clears throat> a couple of other girls from this guy, Richard Calloway have been kidnapped. So him and a dozen armed men then go off in pursuit of them. So at this point, they have a couple of choices. Calloway says that they should just ride, gallop hard straight towards the, uh, the, the tra straight down the trail that they found um, and try to get the girls right now before daylight. Daylight passes in 90 minutes. That's one option. What Boone says is at the first hint of hoofbeats, the Native Americans would surely kill the girls. Now, your first impulse here, it's very re reasonable that it would be to just chase after them right now and get them, right? On a very like minor um, example, like I once had my dog like run off. And when, when you chase my dog, he runs away from you. When you run away from him, he chases you. I know that, but my first instinct was to chase him. Not because it's the right thing to do, but because I wanted the situation to resolve safely and my anxiety got the best of me. So in this case too, Calloway is like, look, we just have to go get the girls like right now as fast as possible. And Boone is like, no. He ordered Calloway to lead his horsemen on a wide berth um, to kind of cut off where the raider's route would, would, would go based on his knowledge of the geography. And then Boone and his party were going to pursue on foot stealthily and try to drive the Indians into Callaway's net. So one thing here, as far as like a leadership lesson, when you tell people what to do, when you boss people around, best case, it kind of like diminishes their own ability to leverage their full intelligence and come up with their own ideas to help move things forward. Worst case, they'll actively sabotage you. So Callaway agrees in the moment, but he's pissed off and he's used to giving orders, not receiving them. And by the way, even if someone is not used to giving orders, they still uh, are not going to like being directly bossed around, which is why wherever possible, it's, it's a lot better to try to like ask questions and provide supporting information such that they come up with the idea, not you. Now, obviously in, a, in, in an emergency situation like this, sometimes you have to just say, trust me, we'll talk about it later, but right now I need you to just do this thing. Um, in order for that not to piss people off and in order for people to go along with that, you need to build a trusting relationship. And that takes time.
So when you have the opportunity to not boss people around, don't boss people around so that when you need to, you actually can. And they'll actually go along with it because you have that trust built up. But as far as it goes, um, Boone has the detachment, despite the fact that this is his own daughter, to say, you know what? We're going to not do the obvious thing and go straight for the goal because this negative outcome could transpire. Again, he's thinking about the possibility of a negative outcome. He's like, instead, we're going to do this other thing because he reasoned that these kids are valuable as captives. They're young. Um, they're female. And they knew that this was Boone's daughter. And Boone had a lot of uh, fame on the frontier at this point. So as a bargaining chip, like these girls had some value. They weren't going to kill them right away. So basically, you know, Boone follows and follows and then he gets to a point where the trail disappears because as, as I said before, the Native Americans start going through the middle of creeks and circling back through cane breaks and basically just like hiding this, the trail. So basically Boone uses his knowledge of the terrain to say that, you know what, the trail is gone, but my best guess is they, they probably went up north this way towards this river um, because this is like the most efficient path to go towards. So he kind of did his scenario planning in his head of, okay, they could go here, they could go there, they could go here. Based on what I know, it's most probable that they went this way. And again, this is in a high-pressure situation. He found the, the detachment to effectively do the scenario planning and continue to purposefully and stealthily approach. So about midday, they reached this, this stream where they lost all sign of the Native Americans. But Boone, being an experienced frontiersman, had cultivated his expert intuition. And his intuition told him that their quarry was near. So they go to the top of this, this hill and they see, you know, peering down that the Native Americans are in a secluded glen with the girls. They start crawling towards the Native Americans, getting in position to take a shot. And Boone signals to everyone to like not shoot without his go-ahead. The point man lifts his gun and fires regardless. Because again, he lacks that detachment to realize that as of right now, Looking down at the camp, none of the Native Americans are trying to kill the girls right now. The girls are tied up, the Native Americans are, one is lounging, the other is like, you know, sharpening his knife, and the other guy is eating some food, you know? So they don't need to act right at this second. There's no impetus to act right at this second. And in fact, the point man misses. So the Indian camp was pandemonium in an instant. One of the Shawnees lunged at the girls with his war club. It narrowly missed Jemima's head. As he drew back a second time, he fell, shot through the chest by either Boone or the surveyor Floyd, who had fired simultaneously. Another Shawnee was hit and toppled backwards into the flames, but somehow recovered and lurched into the thick bush. 
By now, Boone's entire party was descending on the camp, shouting their terrible war cries. The two remaining Indians scattered into the cane. At the crack of the first rifle shot, Jemima leapt to her feet and cried, That's Daddy. The more composed Betsy Calloway, ducking the war club, jerked her back close. Betsy wrapped her arms around both the younger girls and pulled them backwards off the log they were sitting on. When Boone reached the camp, all three leapt to their feet, but he barked at them to get back down behind the dead tree. Years later, Jemima Boone told her granddaughter that when the finality of their rescue set in, all three girls collapsed in a weeping cluster. They were joined by Betsy's fiancé, Samuel Henderson, and Boone himself, who sunk to his knees and bawled like an infant. Jemima had never before seen her father cry. So Boone is like a extremely stoic person. Uh, he routinely faces death with kind of this like nonplussed fatalistic attitude where he's like, well, if it's our time, it's our time, you know? Um, and his entire life, he's just been hard scrabble surviving on the frontier. And, you know, he, he kind of had this like admirable equanimity. So he said his, his beliefs were like, it takes but a little philosophy to make a man happy in whatever state fortune may place him. So the idea that he broke down and cried, I mean, this is the only time in, in this entire book where he breaks down and cries, you know. He he really embodied Hemingway's definition of courage, which is like grace under pressure. So lessons from that little scenario. Um, there's the leadership lesson, which is sometimes you have to just directly tell people what to do. But if you do have to do that, it's a failure of leadership. Um, you haven't prepared them such that you don't have to tell them what to do at that time. And also, you haven't done a good job influencing them or eliciting ideas from them such that they can buy in fully and carry them out and feel empowered. So it will happen, but if, if you want to prepare yourself for those eventualities, you got to build a relationship up front such that people can take that on board. Um, and another key thing here is just that aspect of detachment, thinking probabilistically and making the best calls you can at any, any given point and just moving forward to the best of your ability. If you get caught up and you're like, we have to resolve this right now. And you have this like, you know, this distorted mental image of the, the decision space. Like you think that, but by nature, it's easy to think that positive outcomes um, will come to you. You know what I mean? Um, the research shows that, like, we overrepresent the solution space of positive solutions that could transpire, basically. That's why pre-mortems are so effective because we kind of rebalance and we see the negative things that could happen. But Boone was really good about seeing the negatives that could happen, managing his emotions and acting from that more purposeful, more analytical place. So 
Blackfish's attack on Boonsboro is the next like scenario I want to break down. So Blackfish was this like legendary Native American warrior, and he he um, was preparing a major attack on Boonsboro, which was this fort that Boone had founded, where his family lived and a few dozen others. And Blackfish had a cohort of three hundred Native American warriors. 50 British redcoats, uh, Canadian militiamen, and he was going to go down and basically destroy Boonesboro and kill everyone there. On the way, he happens to bump into Daniel Boone, who he captures. Daniel Boone, seeing the size of the war party and knowing the state that Boonesboro is in, they're low on food, they don't have that many able-bodied fighters, he talks to Blackfish and he's like, listen, we have tons of fighters, we have tons of food, and coming and taking over Boonesboro right now is going to be a complete bloodshed, and you're going to waste lots of your people's lives. Just wait till the spring and come back, and you'll be, you'll be totally ready, you'll be prepared, and you're going to be able to take this fort with no problem. And at that time, I can even negotiate with them and we can even give up the fort to you. And what he says is, he's like, hey, listen, like, take us, take me and my men back with you as captives so you have some uh, leverage in case I'm lying. And he says, you can put me through the gauntlet, but don't put my men through the gauntlet. The gauntlet is this thing where, like, <clears throat> Native American warriors line up in two rows, and a captive has to run in between them while they <clears throat> swing, you know, uh, tomahawks and war clubs and whips at the captives. And this <clears throat> this can be a test, a rite of passage. It can also be just, like, a ritual murder, depending on who the person is and what the circumstances are. <clears throat> so for for Daniel Boone, they go they go all the way back into Shawnee country, which at this point Daniel Boone is in his forties, I believe, um, and he he's explored like basically ten ten of the modern states in the United States. At the time, it, it wasn't that many. At the time, it was mostly like complete expanses of wilderness. Um, for example, the state of Kentucky at this time was like three settlements with like less than a thousand people. <clears throat> so in all his years of exploring and being a frontiersman, he had never set foot in Shawnee country. So he's been captured. He's in Shawnee country now. And he goes through the, the gauntlet. He has some some boxing skills. So he's like, you know, trying to like box his way through and the Native Americans are like kind of impressed with him because he's like, you know, fighting back more than the average captive and he has that like coolness and equanimity. Um, but there's one Native American warrior who's like, you know what, we're being too easy on him. So he steps right into the middle of the path with the tomahawk and Boone just like picks up speed and tackles him. And that totally wins over all the Native American warriors. So Blackfish adopts Boone as his son, basically. And 
over time and all the other people in Boone's like group also get adopted. So over time, Boone builds trust. He gets to know people. He's a skilled hunter. So they let him go hunting with one bullet while being trailed by warriors in case he tries to escape. He's putting meat on everyone's table. So people are happy with him. And he's kind of familiar with Native American customs and is a pretty open-minded guy. So he's like gets to know everybody. Eventually, they trust him with two bullets, then three bullets, then four bullets. As he's going out, he's salvaging like gun parts and bullets and gunpowder and like siphoning them off and hiding them in like a pouch he's sewn into his shirt and then taking them back to a hiding spot. So he's building this cache of like gun parts and powder and bullets. And he's a skilled gunsmith, having been an expert sharpshooter on the frontier. So he's like just building this collection silently. Meanwhile, Blackfish takes um, Boone to Lord Hamilton, who is this British general who basically like, he basically supplies and semi-commands, but not really, because nobody really commands the Native Americans, not even their own chiefs. Um, But he like, he commands them as much as, he's able to. So he's like, hey, you might want to attack this American target, that American target. And he knows of Boone. So Blackfish brings Boone in and Hamilton offers Blackfish twice the normal price for an American captive. And Blackfish is like, no, Boone's my adopted son. I'm, we're not going to give him up. But you can have, you can keep him for the night to get what intelligence you can off of him. So Boone regales Hamilton with like all these frontier stories and like, you know, blows his mind. And the next day Blackfish comes back and Lord Hamilton is like, I'll offer you twice as much as I offered you yesterday. And Blackfish is like, Nope, we're, we're leaving. So they leave, they go back and Boone hears, hears talk about the, about them reassembling their force to go back and actually attack Boonesboro this time and kill everyone there, which would include, you know, a lot of his friends and family. So he he decides it's time to escape. So he cuts loose a horse and he's about to ride off when Blackfish's wife sees him and says, Hey, like if you try to run away, they're going to, they're going to kill you. Like you don't have any resources. They're going to find you out there and they're going to hunt you down. And Boone reveals his cache of gun parts and he's like you know basically winks and then rides off and assembles a gun out of his gun parts and basically like runs through the forest with no food and no water going all the way back to Boonesboro while being trailed by Native American warriors and when he gets to Boonesboro they don't trust him they think he's a British spy they're suspicious of how close he got with the Native Americans Another one of Boone's guys had escaped and escaped and told them that Boone like gave them up and surrendered to the Native Americans. So now Boone has to like win back their allegiance. So the whole time Boone's been in Shawnee country, he's been memorizing like the locations of all the settlements and the relative strengths of all the settlements and the you know numbers of troops and the types of weapons they have and all this stuff. So in order to win people back over, Boone leads a raid of a, a Shawnee settlement. But as he's about to leave, the the main Shawnee force, 
led by Blackfish, comes upon Boonesboro. So Boone rushes back, and now like Blackfish and Boone are like parlaying outside the fort each day, and the parlay is like a complete um, sideshow. It's just like on both sides, they're they're just parlaying to buy time. The colonials in the fort are hoping that the Virginia militia with like 200 uh, horsemen will get there in time. And with each passing day, it's clear that the militia will not get there in time. And Blackfish is hoping that the colonials will, will surrender the fort or that he'll be able to get some kind of like advantage um, if he buys time. So eventually it comes to a point where Blackfish and the fort leadership meet outside the fort and there's this time Blackfish brings twice as many Native American warriors and they're all unarmed but eventually during the discussion they get a signal and they attack the colonials and so they get into hand-to-hand combat they're fighting they rush back towards the fort the colonials are able to get into the fort one of them isn't able to but kind of like jumps up and is pulled up over the, you know, like over the, through this like basically window in the fort uh, <clears throat> because the door is shut. And this raging battle ensues for days and days. It's, it's a siege. Um, sharpshooters are, you know, knocking people off the walls and uh, ripping people apart out in the woodlands and, it's just like this crazy thing. Like the Native Americans are trying to dig a trench slash actually it's more like a tunnel. They're trying to dig a tunnel to the edge of the fort so they can pop up and then set the fort walls on fire. Cause it's a wooden fort, but it rains and like the tunnel collapses. And um, eventually after days and days, like the pioneers are able to overcome the Native American force because in the intervening months they've built up their supplies and have um, become much better prepared for this eventuality. So what are the leadership and decision science lessons here? Um, Really, maybe I should say decision making because, you know, I use the term decision science somewhat broadly, but um, and also it's somewhat of an art, I would say. Um, But leadership lessons, I think one leadership lesson here is that people care more about what you do than what you say. When Boone came back and he's like, listen, I did this for all of you guys, people didn't really care. But when he went and led that attack on the Shawnee settlement, people saw that and were like, okay, we can trust this guy again, you know? Um... I think from a decision-making standpoint, again, you see that open-mindedness. You see that detachment. Instead of trying to fight right there, fight and die, which is what a lot of frontiersmen would do, as we will see in the next story, um, Boone has the detachment to say, I'm going to give up right now. We're going to surrender. And we're going to create a scenario that improve our odds of success. So again, he's thinking probabilistically. He has detachment. He's he's not being impulsive. He's not being reflexive where he doesn't need to be. And 
you also see his open-mindedness, right? Like that's why he's able to connect with the Shawnee, integrate into their tribe. Like he, he genuinely like is able to um, just treat people like people and not see them as second class and engage with them. And it's a really sad circumstance of history that put uh, him and Blackfish and like these other Native American warriors into this like, you know, kind of whatever, like cosmic battle where they're just like actors in this like cosmic play almost um, because they're very much cut from the same cloth in some ways. And they definitely had respect for each other. Um, and that wasn't true for all Native Americans and all frontiersmen. In fact, it definitely wasn't the rule, um, which, which we know as far as like, it, it's, it's common knowledge that there's a lot of racism from the pioneers towards Native Americans. Now, I think the reality, as I see it reading this book is, it, these dynamics exist on a bell curve. There are people who are extremely open-minded towards Native Americans. There were people who absolutely hated them. And the whole smallpox blanket thing was perpetrated by a general and this this crony of his who who felt that way, who absolutely like loathed the Native Americans. And when um, the Native American war chief Pontiac sent basically like delegates to negotiate for peace, they gave those delegates smallpox blankets um, as the first approved instance, maybe one of the very rare approved instances of chemical warfare um, in the new world. So that's like, that's what it looked like on the pioneer side. But what's uh, lesser known too is the native Americans commonly viewed the white settlers as inferior as well. They viewed them as created from the feet of the great spirit, as opposed to the head, let's say. Um, and when they wouldn't just, you know, kill captives from these battles they would adopt them into the tribe quote-unquote but that involved like stripping them of their culture stripping them of their white blood um by doing a series of rituals um before they were deemed acceptable for native american society so these like in-group out-group dynamics are not just like confined to one group of people it's it's like a tendency of human nature that's distributed um you know in something like a bell curve so the point being is boone was on the open-minded side but like for the rest of us like you know we all like to think we're open-minded but i think we can all stand to be more open-minded um because it enables us to treat the message independently and with appropriate analysis as opposed to just dismissing it because of the source it comes from. So the final story I want to talk about today is a particularly instructive one as far as the art of good decision making. And what makes it instructive is how relatable it is and how unfortunate it is.
So Boone, Lieutenant Ta uh, Colonel Stephen Trigg, Colonel Todd, and this guy called Major Hugh McGarry are riding out to do some scouting because this invading host of Native Americans are destroying settlers' crops, killing livestock, torching houses, uh, kidnapping, killing, etc. So they're going out there to try to do something about this. Now, McGarry is volatile and unstable. He has what they call a volatile instability bordering on psychosis. He once took revenge for the murder of his 15-year-old stepson by shooting and killing a Shawnee brave he spotted wearing what he thought might be the dead boy's shirt. He then tomahawked the corpse to a pulp and fed the remains to his dogs. So before this expedition, Colonel Todd is like, you know, well, first of all, McGarry talk, talking to Todd is like, maybe we should wait for reinforcements before we do this attack. And Colonel Todd is like, McGarry, you know, you're craven and timid. So this guy, you know, he he's volatile, he's unstable, so sort of psychotic. And this affront to his manhood really gets under his skin. So they're tracking these, these Native Americans. They're going, they're going for it uh, against their best judgment, against even McGarry's best judgment. And McGarry is a maniac. And Boone is becoming more and more unsettled. And this guy is like a hyper-experienced frontiersman. You know what I mean? If he's unsettled, there's something going on because he has expert intuition. If you're a beginner, your intuition is untutored. If you're a human being, your intuition is going to systematically be wrong in certain ways. But if you're Daniel Boone and you're tracking a Native American host and you've done this hundreds of times and you've been in insane situations like all the time, if you feel unsettled, you should listen to your spidey sense. So why is he getting unsettled? Well, it's the um, Indian habit to retreat from an engagement like the siege of Bryan Station. So like we were saying, Bryan Station was attacked by Native Americans. They're following, they're trying to find the attackers. It's the Indian habit to then break into small groups after an attack like that to confuse pursuers. And yet the Indian sign, the sign that these Native Americans made no effort to conceal, suggested that the entire force was moving together along an old buffalo trace. So Boone is like, this is not normal. Why are they all moving together and not trying to conceal their sign? It's almost like they want us to follow them. So the attacking force was estimated to have like a hundred and something people, but Boone knew that the troop estimates for men engaged in a firefight are notoriously inaccurate. So here's something to notice, right? He gets this information and he's like, okay, how reliable is this? Where is it coming from? Is this information systematically skewed in some way? He's asking these questions because he's going to place a bet. The bet is, his life. He's going to bet his life on following this trail or not following this trail. So 
the militiamen are rushing through this this Indian camp on the trail, and Boone lingers to count the Dow's fires. So he's counting the fires. He's like, wait a second. Like, I think we're actually outnumbered two to one. So he's done the analysis. He's thought about it. He, he's gathered additional information. He, by the way, look, look at his detachment, too. McGarry is not doing this. McGarry is losing his mind. He's just, you know, going down the trail. But Boone is like, let me stop. Let me count the doused fires. So... They keep going, they keep going, another day passes, and they find a number of warriors on the crest of the hill. These warriors take the arrival of the settlers without a care, staring wordlessly and casually smoking pipes. Most of the militiamen just think they're stragglers, and Boone suspects otherwise. Boone directly tells his superior they want to seduce us into an ambush. So this is a really good thing, right? It bodes well for Boone to have the courage to dissent. It bodes well for Colonel Todd that they have the relationship that Boone would dissent. So far, so good. Boone also knows the geography, right? So we talk about expert intuition. He knows that the Indians have chosen a near unassailable defensive position at the crest of a hill across a river. So they're going to have to cross a river, go up a hill, to fight what is a Native American cohort that outnumbers them two to one. And by the way, just so you understand too, the Native Americans are armed with guns, okay? Like in every conflict I've mentioned so far, they have guns. They have arrows and guns, but they they largely have guns uh, because they've been traded guns for various things, mostly land, but also other things. Um, and right now, I mean, the British have just been giving them mass quantities of firearms because the British are trying to use the Native Americans to open up a new front in the Revolutionary War at this time. So Boone is like, listen, if we're, if we have to fight, let's at least divide our company and go a mile upstream and then try to like open uh, a second front against them and flank them instead of just going directly across this river and then up uh, a hill. So Boone's the most experienced woodsman in the party and other people are starting to agree. But Hugh McGarry is like, you know, what did we come here for? Like, I never saw any signs of cowardice from you before. And uh, one of Boone's nephews later recalled seeing the tendons coil and tighten in the frontiersman's neck as he took a step towards McGarry. His next words were clipped, delivered through a clenched jaw and salted with an operatic fury. I can go as far as in an Indian fight as any other man, Boone said. An icy silence hung over the assemblage. It continued as McGarry ran to his horse, mounted and splashed into, into the shallows. Them that ain't cowards, follow me, he bellowed. So... As more than a few military historians have observed, a capable commanding officer such as George Rogers Clark would have shot McGarry on the spot for insubordination. Probably a good idea. Again, culture, right? Action, action determines culture. If you shoot this guy right now, people are going to know that we care more about success than bravado. 
Or, you know, in contemporary terms, you can discipline them. You can um, shut them down. You can, you know, bring out the big guns when you really need to. And in this case, they really needed to because lives were on the line. A lot of lives. And the momentum swung. They lost their ability to stop, stop what was going on. And people rode right up into the hill. So, <clears throat> suffice it to say, it was a complete disaster. There were even more than Boone suspected. <clears throat> McGarry's lead squad were their first targets, and immediately 22 men fell, and there were three left alive. Things are just, like, completely falling apart. There are short, you know, shouts and war whoops and smoke, and you can't even see through the gun smoke because of how thick it is. And all of a sudden, Boone sees a lone rider galloping towards him away from the battle. And it's the psychopath, Hugh McGarry. And McGarry is like, why aren't you retreating? You know, the lines have given way. And both the officers were dead or dying, bleeding out among the bodies of their decimated company. It's just completely falling apart. And, um, Boone is helping to evacuate who he can. He's finding horses for people. He's getting rid of them. And soon it's, it's him and his son left. And Boone's son says, you know, father, I won't leave you. And Boone is looking frantically for a horse that they can mount and plunge into the river to escape. And he turns around and he hears a thud and his son is lying flat on his back. One arm outstretched with his eyes glazing over. So Boone picks up his son, throws him over his shoulders, and begins to sprint. And a very large Native American warrior is running towards them, gaining on them. He lowers his son to the ground, turns, fires. The warrior falls dead. And Boone waits for his son to die before running off to rejoin the company. The Licking River is clogged with the dead and wounded at the broad and shallow ford, and most are pioneers. So, what can we learn from this? Yikes. Yikes, yikes, yikes. So this, what, what hits me about this story is like, sometimes every, you do everything right. You take in the right data. You, you analyze it. You ask, where did this come from? How valid is this? In what ways is this systematically skewed? You taking information from different sources. You you look for empirical science. You you count the doused fires. You tap into your expert knowledge of geography and of Native American martial, you know, culture. And despite all that, all it takes is a single hothead to challenge you. Your emotions kick up and despite your best judgment and despite your son's life and your nephew's lives being on the line, you get excited and become reflexive and charge into a disaster that you knew was coming. Right? So it just goes to show how even someone as, as ice cold as Daniel Boone, who's been through so, so much, uh, 
can have his emotions just get the better of him. And despite teeing up a good decision, he is unable to follow it through. And um, yeah, it's it's hard to know. I mean, the lesson from that obviously is like, put your foot down and value the outcome over your ego. You know what I mean? But obviously, if he if he still possessed attachment in that moment, he would have seen that and done that. What happened was he, he got emotionally flooded and he lost his detachment. And this is a person who's very good at staying cool under pressure. So I think here it goes back to what we were saying in the Thinking in Bets episodes about having some compassion for yourself. You're going to get it wrong. You're going to make the wrong decisions at times. You're going to know what the right decision is and still do the wrong thing because you, you didn't manage your emotions effectively. And it's, it's unavoidable that that'll be the case. And basically, you just have to hope that you practice these skills of thinking probabilistically, detaching at the right times, questioning your beliefs, questioning the provenance of information, such that when it counts, you're able to do that. Um, And when you're unable to do that, try to learn from it as best as you can and have compassion for yourself. Yeah, and that's the episode on... The Deadly Decisions of Frontier Life with Daniel Boone, based on a book called Blood and Treasure, Daniel Boone and the Fight for America's First Frontier, which is a fantastic book, especially out here in rural Michigan, where I am vacationing right now, hence the possibly worse sound quality. We'll see if it's worse or not. Next week, we'll be talking about how to foster a great culture in your organization with examples from the Haitian Revolution. Prison Gangs and Silicon Valley with Arik, who will be leading that episode, um, and the legendary VC Ben Horowitz through his book um, about culture, which I believe is called What You Do Is Who You Are, Um, but more on that next week. Goodbye.